You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Welcome, North Can Chapel. Glad you are here. Doesn't this building look kind of amazing? It looks so good. So if you're watching online, you're not here to see this, but I want to encourage you. Um, this place looks incredible. Our family life team and a team of volunteers uh, have just transformed this place. This is kind of my favorite right over here, if you can see it. I just think that's so creative and cool. Um, and so if you are here today, I want to encourage you. Um, maybe in between services or before you head out today, um, please take a few moments and, and head up to the family ministry area. Um, you are welcome to walk the halls, and I just want to encourage you, as you do so, just pray. Um, pray for children and students and volunteers, and everyone who's going to be here this week. This is really an incredible week of ministry that the Lord has put before us, and we want to be faithful. Um, so for those of you that helped out, thank you. And for all of you that are praying, all use what? Where'd that come from? It's like Pennsylvania somewhere. Anyway, thank you so much uh, for all of your help. So, so think about this for a minute. Where were you 30 years ago? Where were you 30 years ago? What would you tell your 30, year, or 30 years ago self? Everybody knew Peter. Everybody knew Peter when he was in his 20s. <laughs> What would you tell your 30 years ago self? There's a lot that I'd love to tell 11-year-old Brandon, not that he would listen. I'd probably want to tell him anyway. What would you tell your 30 years ago self? What mistakes would you avoid? What risks would you be maybe a little more willing to take? What opportunities would you maybe lean a little bit harder into 30 years ago? 30 years ago. 30 years can change a lot in a person, can it? So this morning we're starting our summer series here at North Can Chapel, and uh, you may have caught this, but every summer we kind of fall into this rhythm where every summer we take a long look deep into one book. In years past, it's been Haggai, Esther, uh, James was most recent, and so this year, this summer, we're going to take a long look into 1 Peter. I can't think of a better book than 1 Peter for this time in our world. We get Peter 30 years older than he was in the Gospels. Peter, the loud mouth, has tempered somewhat and has been seasoned with a little bit of wisdom. Peter's wit is still there, still sharp. It's just wielded with a bit more discretion. He's still very direct, as we'll find out. More than anything, Peter represents somebody, we get, a, we get a shot at this guy who has walked with Jesus for 30 years or so. He's seen incredible cultural change in that time, often at the edge of a sword. Peter's lived and led in times of political tension, social tension, church tension. But here's what I love most. By the time we get to 1 Peter, he is still deeply stirred by Jesus and his mission. He brings perspective to tough times. He calls on Christians to be courageous when everything else seems lost. And his ever-present gospel clarity shines brightly through the dense cultural fog. 
When I'm in my 50s, I kind of want to be like Peter. So this summer, 1 Peter, basically we're going to go verse by verse. And as you heard our online community pastor, Matt Brumfield, um, we got 1 Peter scripture journals in the lobby this morning. You can pick that up. Um, if you haven't yet, that's okay. You can catch up uh, kind of maybe next week or in between services. Go grab them. Um, if you're online, you can head in the office anytime. We'd love to just set one aside for you. Also, summer is the time where we're all traveling, right? So we've got vacations and we've got stuff we're doing. If you're ever out at any point this week or this summer and you want to catch up from a week that you've missed, you can head online to ncchapel.com sermons and you can catch up, kind of watch a week that you missed here or there. But all that to say, today, here's where we're going this morning. One giant statement for you note-taking types. Here you go. The God who brought salvation to this world is the God who will lead you through this world. This is how Peter wants us to start off. The God who brought salvation to this world is the God who will lead you through this world. So, like the subject line of an email, Peter starts off with two really powerful verses. So let's get there. First Peter chapter 1. And these first two verses pretty much give us a summary of the entire book. So we're going to do a couple points of introduction, but first, here's how he starts things off. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, we'll get to what that means in a minute, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, we'll talk about those, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I'm not sure that Google will let you put that in the subject line of an email, but that's a really strong way to start one off. So a couple points of introduction. First off, who's Peter? A little background on this guy. 30 years earlier, Jesus saw Peter fishing. And in a clever metaphor, he calls out and he says, hey, you follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And Jesus changes Peter's name from the Hebrew Simon to the Greek Peter, which is a clever play on words from the Greek word for Petra, which means rock. Interesting, it's kind of, if you follow Peter all through the Gospels, Jesus is always kind of making Peter into something. He always seems to be working on him chiseling away the rough rock, revealing the sculpture underneath. Reading through the Gospels, not surprisingly, Peter features really prominently. He's always at the center of the action, always ready to charge in. He's got a big heart, a loud mouth, the kind of swagger that you can't really teach, but we all kind of admire in the other person. His life with Jesus might be described as deep but violent, sincere but faltering, Basically, he's just real. That's what I love about him. Over the course of the Gospels, Peter's faith journey paints a pretty complex picture, though. Peter, the rock, who, when the time comes to step out of the boat, sinks like a pebble. Peter, the devoted disciple, whose outward allegiance to Jesus is only matched by inward impulsivity and a near constant recklessness. Peter, the lion-hearted leader who, in the cold light of a crucifixion courtyard, is reduced to a cowardly kitten. Peter. Whatever we want to make of Peter, I think we actually have a lot to learn from him. I think Peter learned more from beneath the waves than he ever could from on top of them. 
I think Peter's denial led to Peter's depth. I think he finally learned grace in the restorative seaside fish and chips breakfast he had with Jesus after the resurrection. And isn't that the profound paradox of the Christian life? When you really think about it, no one is fit to lead who hasn't first been broken. We can't learn the warmth of grace until we feel the cold sting of shame. We can't freely love others without knowing how freely God has loved each of us. Here's what I want us to see, though. By the time of 1 Peter, Peter is not just some salesman for Jesus. He's not some first century brand pusher trying to get people to buy this idea of Christianity. At this point, 30 years after meeting Jesus, probably in his early to mid-50s, Peter is still a man on fire, albeit with a few less errant sparks jumping out of the fireplace. (laughs) Second piece of intro and context, who's he writing to? Okay, we get four clues here. First, Peter calls his recipients exiles. Did you catch that right at the top of verse 1? Exiles, the word means stranger or pilgrim or sojourner or even drifter, if that helps you. Ten words in, and Peter's already hinting, introducing a major theme in this letter that he'll unpack in the weeks to come, that God's people are temporary residents in this world with our addresses written in pencil. We don't belong here. Exiles. Not only exiles, but he calls them a certain kind of exiles. What's he call them? He says, you are elect exiles. Huh. That's just a beautiful word smash. What do those two words mean? Elect and exiles. They mean plenty, especially when you put them together. Literally, this means chosen travelers, known strangers, or as I like to put it, homebound homeless. Hmm. Kind of flushes out the Christian identity, doesn't it? We're known, but not by this world. We're recognized, but like no one here really gets us. We're here, but not forever. We're home, but not really. And then the third identity word, he says, you're elect exiles of the dispersion. That's an interesting word. Now, Peter reaches way back in theological history, and he pulls this massively loaded theological term to intensify this description. He says, of the dispersion. It's a very interesting word choice. Here's why. That word was used to describe the Jewish people six centuries earlier when neighboring kingdoms came in, blew them up out of their homeland, and scattered them around the world. It means scattered. Why that word? Here, Peter is linking God's people throughout time to the church which is another theme that he'll play up in this letter a lot. Last of the four clues, kind of of introduction to who he's writing to, Peter lists off five locations that mean next to nothing to most of us, right? You're like, oh yeah, Pontus, I know exactly where that is. We're going there this summer for vacation, right? Here's what he says. He says, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are five regions, like kind of like provinces, city-states in northern Turkey that cover an area, get this, of 300,000 square miles. This is the backwater of the Roman Empire. These are one-stoplight kind of towns. <laughs> Tucked here and there in the nooks and crannies of the empire are these small, loosely connected house churches. So the most likely scenario is that Peter's letter was carried to these churches and read about that. Think about that. Like if you are sitting there in your little first century house church, 20 people in your living room, 
who are devoted followers of Jesus, and they're learning what it means to follow him in a very basic, very simple, very beautiful manner. And then in comes a runner from somewhere. He's running into town with a letter from Peter, from Rome. Oh, my gosh. So you gather for dinner, you sit down and you read it and you try and memorize as much as you can. And if anybody is literate in your living room, which is unlikely at this point in time, you try and copy down a few fragments and then the runner is on to the next house church. This is the world of First Peter. So last piece of intro and then we'll get into the meat of this first century mass email. What's the situation? Why is he writing? And this is why I'm so excited for us to peer into First Peter at this point in our world. The readers of 1 Peter may have felt a little bit like us, I imagine. They felt a little disconnected, and they felt a little out of place, felt a little scattered and alone. It's because they were. They felt uneasy, unsettled, and afraid. And it turns out that looking through the rearview mirror of history, those fears were well-founded. Here's what happened. 1 Peter was written about 63 A.D., the year after 1 Peter was written, about 64, 70% of Rome burns to the ground, and no one knew who did it. Emperor Nero, looking for an easy scapegoat, turned to a rising, suspicious, and curiously otherworldly sect called Christians. And he blamed them, and evidence suggests that most of the empire bought it. So the Roman world began raising its eyebrow at at these Jesus people, who always seemed a little odd anyway. While Christians weren't openly persecuted yet, they were definitely suspicious now. While Nero's blame shift didn't make Christianity illegal, it made Christians unpopular. A first century historian, a guy named Tacitus, describes a horrible scene. Emperor Nero had Christians covered in pitch, impaled on poles, and says, when the day waned, he burned them to serve for evening lights in his garden. File that image away for a few minutes because it's going to come back up. So this cultural tide turn led to these isolated, small, spasmatic, random outbursts. Because if Christians could be blamed for Rome, what else could they be blamed for? They're nice people. The world of First Peter was a world of rising worry, heightening fear, disquieting emotions. And it created a feeling of instability, unsafety, and a general sense of what in the world is going on in the first century church. And into that... Peter offers this richly, beautifully, theologically heavy word of comfort that's like cool water dousing the rising flames of worry, fear, and persecution. Here's verse 2. Let's look at it again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of blood, may grace and peace be multiplied, multiplied to you. Here's what I love. Peter calms their fears with this richly robust Trinitarian doctrine of our salvation. Like he just gets in there with deep theology and just, oh, right? The Father foreknows us. Did you catch that? The Father comes first, which foreknow is way more than he just predicted it or he knew about it. That the cause of our salvation, the security that calms a fearful heart, isn't that we reached out to a distant God, but that God, like a loving Father, reaches out to us. But then secondly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Did you catch that? 
This is just the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said he would do back in John 16, guiding believers in truth, reminding us of what Jesus said, this inner compass of right orientation that every believer in Christ has experienced at some point in our life. And then thirdly, the Son cleanses us. That's a pretty image, a vivid image and a little gross where he says the sprinkling of blood. This is Peter hearkening back to the Old Testament where God forgives unable and unstable sinners, bringing us into relationship with him through the sprinkling of blood. We enter into that relationship through the blood and we show that relationship by our obedience. And then Peter finally concludes with this prayer plea where he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I know we've got more text to get to, but let's hang here for just two seconds. Grace, God's unmerited favor, God's just because love. He says, don't lose sight of that, church. Peace, peace, be still, be still, be calm. Know that God is the rock in a very tumultuous world. So two verses in, let's get going. <laughs> this next like 10 verse section, which is where we're going to be today, we're going to go all the way down to verse 12. This is about one word, salvation. And if it's helpful, helpful you can think about these next 10 verses as answering four questions. I want to give you the questions up front, and then we're going to get to them. First question, who authorized my salvation? That's the first one. Second one is, what is salvation like? Third one is, what's salvation mean in this world? And then fourth, how did God plan my salvation? We're going to get to all of those. So question number one, who authorized my salvation? Let's take a look in verse three. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So right out of the gate, Peter just like shoves off into this wonderful place. He launches his letter with praise. Okay, why? And then he follows this invitation to worship God with one really good reason. He says, for he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Basically, praise God because you've been saved. That's where he starts. Guys, it is so significant that Peter starts his letter here. Of all the things he could have started with, most of which he will get to later, this is Peter going, hey, whatever else follows, you need to know your salvation is the most important thing. Writing to fearful Christians, he wants them to know in a world where you are overwhelmed and under threat, you are insecure and you are unsure, the most important thing about you is something that God has done for you, not what you have done for yourself. The most important thing about you is that you have an inheritance that you played no part in securing. The most important thing about you is the salvation that you played no part in achieving. One of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, puts it this way. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. As if to say, Christ and Christ alone, and don't you forget it, church. Which Peter then perfectly follows with this phrase, a living hope through the resurrection. In a world marked by death, Peter is looking to life, staring at it, as if to say, to whatever extent Jesus is dead, your hope is dead. 
But, but, but he's not dead. He's alive. And so your hope is alive. Now, speaking of life in the context of death, question number two, what is my salvation like? What is my salvation like? Peter imagines this living hope now as like an unseen safety deposit box that he calls an inheritance. Take a look in verse four. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Four words that should just leap off the page to you. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Those are great words. This last week, I found something that, um, that kind of totally rocked my world. Well, that's a little overstated. This last week, I looked in the mirror, and I found a gray ear hair. That's like insult to injury. I'm like, seriously? Gray ear hair? Oh. And after I lobbed cursing at the genetic gene pool that would have prompted such a horrendous occurrence, I did what most of you do. I reached for the tweezers, I gritted my teeth, and I plucked that little sucker out by the roots. At which point I realized I maybe I made a mistake because I've heard rumors that those things come back with a vengeance. So I guess I'm going to keep you posted. <laughs> But then I realized, I'm like, holy smokes, I am like solidly in my 40s. And like, this is going to keep happening. And some of you right now are holding back because you're like, yeah, there's going to be more. Just buckle up. And I'm like, and I know it. And you're right. And I know that. Now that's the chintzy, silly, surfacey stuff. But what about the harder stuff? What about our lives? Seriously, how fragile is life? How fragile is life? We know that life is quick. But how fragile is it? Last week we talked about creation groaning and groaning together. And we grieve because we know that this is not how things are supposed to be. And if we're thoughtful enough, though, there has to be this level of emotional awareness that goes, you know what, Peter, I am actually surrounded by things that are, in fact, perishable, defiled, fading, and unkept. My life is the opposite of these four words, Peter. This place is going down in a hurry, and I can't avoid it. And so feel free, color your hair if you want to, and I'm not going to touch that one. But like, go on whatever life-prolonging diet you feel is going to help you. But at some point, we've got to be emotionally aware enough to go, okay, well, then what? And this is Peter going, yeah, that's this life. But Christian... Fearful Christian, anxious Christian, tired Christian, world-weary Christian, your salvation is not that way. What Jesus accomplished is forever. His work does not go bad. It doesn't have an expiration or a sell-by date on it. It lasts. It's permanent. And so his implication is, where are you in this whole thing? Which leads to question number three. Question three, what's salvation even mean in this world? Verse six. He's talking about this inheritance, and now he pivots a bit, and he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You have been grieved by various trials. Now watch this metaphor. So that the test, or these have come, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trials, fire, stop. What's Peter getting at? Where have these people seen the image of fire associated with pain and fear? That's exactly what he's getting at. And I absolutely love what Peter does with that image. He takes the fire of persecution and he recasts it as the fire of refinement. He takes the weapon of the world and he turns it into an instrument of God. And guys, this is exactly what God does. This sounds so much like Joseph from centuries earlier, right? When Joseph told his brothers, he goes, yeah, you guys meant this for evil. God meant it for God. <laughs> and this is the gospel, that suffering is not sovereign. Our God is sovereign. And in his hand, persecution becomes a preamble to a purpose. But that's hard to believe, isn't it? This is getting a little bit difficult of a doctrine. We're not covered in pitch, I don't think. That's not our fiery trial, but what about when the cancer comes back? When the prodigal daughter doesn't? When someone you love leaves? When the anxiety won't? What about those trials, Peter? Regardless of your opinion of God's relationship to human suffering, here's something that I know and I've learned. You don't get around pain by shrinking God's responsibility or excusing him from the conversation. We weren't designed to get around pain. We are designed by a sovereign God for him to carry us through the pain for his sovereign purposes and in so doing, redeem pain itself. Because this is what the gospel does. Beauty from ashes, joy from shame, life from death. There's one phrase nestled in this that's an absolute game changer where he says this, now for a little while. Oh. Now for a little while. If I had to summarize what Peter is talking about here, one word, perspective. The God who brought salvation to this world is the God who will lead you through this world. Question number four. How did God plan salvation. As if we needed any more perspective, and as, as if this wasn't already incredible, Peter zooms way out, and now he gives us the full timeline of salvation history. Take a look in verse 10. He says this, concerning this salvation, this thing that you, Christian, experience, you know, you cling to, concerning this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched 
And they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So what he's talking about here is all the Old Testament prophets are looking forward, going, gosh, who is Messiah? When is he going to come? Gosh, we want to know so bad. We're hungry to be made right with the Lord. And then here's Peter's insight, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Hmm. This is Peter going, guys, you got to get this. The law, the prophets, the poetry, everything that has been written, all of that has pointed to one thing. This has been in the service to the community that is called the church, those who, by faith, trusted Christ alone for salvation. Everything points to Jesus. So one of my favorite teaching pastors, Alistair Begg, has succinctly put it. I don't think he said this first. I think he has said it a lot. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted... In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. I'll say that again. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. Jesus is at the center of this whole thing. And Peter says, they weren't serving themselves. They're serving you. And then Peter gives us just this like beautiful, unexpected, imaginative insight into the surprisingly emotional life of angels, which is a subject that God's word actually doesn't talk a whole lot about. Peter pictures angels longing to look into our salvation. And what does that even mean? That phrase, long to look, in Greek, It means to stoop over and to gaze, like going, ah. It's the only time this is used in the entire Bible, but when every time it's used in secular Greek, what it means, the idea of somebody exerting effort, even to the point of their own inconvenience, to see what's going on. It's like parents looking over the edge of an infant's crib going, ah, look at that, look at that. Angels are apparently intensely interested in our salvation and our spiritual activity of humans. Scripture says that angels rejoice over the conversion of a single sinner, Luke 15.10. Paul says that angels learn about the power of salvation from watching us, Ephesians 3.10. One day they're going to rejoice when redemption history is rolled up and completed, Revelation 5.11. Now why does Peter bring all this up? Is this just good poetry from the fishermen? Just like chubby little baby angels up in heaven with their chubby little baby angel arms looking wistfully over some cotton ball cloud. I think it's more than that. Here's Peter's pastoral point. Because let's remember, he's writing to encourage fearful Christians. And so let me, let me just ask you, how does it shape your understanding of your salvation to know that at the moment God sovereignly moved in your life and prompted you to confess Christ, angels dwelling forever in the white-hot presence of Almighty God looked over and said, did you see that? This is way more than just charming. Way more than just Bedford Falls, George Bailey, and bell ringing. Great movie, terrible theology. (laughs) 
How does it frame your understanding of the fiery trials of this world? Verse 6, when you feel attacked by enemies visible and enemies invisible, when you feel discouraged and dejected, afraid and alone, then in those places, those times, what does it do to your soul that in those moments the unnumbered hosts of heaven nudge each other as if to say, get a load of what God's doing in their life. Look at their hearts. Can you believe how great God is? Look at what they're thinking and feeling. There's joy underneath the pain and there's purpose forming down there. Can you believe that? And all of that prompts the hallways of heaven to reverberate with the sound of holy, holy, holy is our God. Past the imaginative poetry. This is seasoned Pastor Peter wrapping his arms around 300,000 miles of house churches burning like flickering candle wicks and the winds of persecution, saying, don't underestimate, don't minimize, don't forget the beauty of what God has done for you. The God who brought salvation to this world is the God that's going to lead you through this world. So what do we do with all this? And what does it mean for us, North Canton, 2022, today? Here's why 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12 is so important. Because when we are pressed, oppressed, or pressed, when we are pressed, the first thing we lose is trust. The first thing we lose is trust. Have you ever felt that? I have. Like when I'm afraid, when I get scared, when I'm alone, I get discouraged, I stop trusting God and I start trusting myself and it always ends badly. Turns out, looking to scripture, choosing control over trust is actually a pretty common tale. Abram in Genesis 15, he says, hey God, I don't have any kids and that's a problem for me. And so God says, hey, come on outside, look up at the stars if you can even count them. Abraham, I've got you, that's what your family is going to be like. Ten years later, Very next chapter, Abraham takes things into his own hands, kind of literally, sleeps with his wife's servant as if to say, I got you, God. You probably forgot about me. I'm going to cover you. Don't worry. And we're going, how'd you lose sight of the big picture there, Abraham? David. David kills Goliath, becomes king, leads God's people. This is like Israel's Camelot period. And so God says, hey, David. Your kingdom is going to be forever. Messiah is coming from your house, David. And then also, strangely, ten ten years later, he's sitting on his balcony, twiddling his thumbs, sees Bathsheba. She comes over, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband to cover it up. And we're going, ah, David, how could you lose sight of the big picture, man? What's going on? And not to put too fine a point on it, but Peter, Peter's own life, just tells this story over and over again. On the boat. I'm with you, Jesus. Here I come. Gulp. (laughs) Seawater. In the garden with his sword to the soldier. He says, like heck, you're taking my Jesus. Slice. Wax the guy's ear off. Even after the resurrection, they don't know what to do. And Peter goes, all right, that's it. I'm going fishing. At least I know how to do that. And here we go again. I'm like, Peter, come on, man. How could you miss it? (laughs) What does Jesus want us to see in Peter? What is he trying to teach Peter? Why is Peter's life this never-ending object lesson? Because, guys, you and I, we are the exact same way. Spiritually nearsighted sojourners reaching in the dark, feeling out for faith. What are they, what are we doing 
What are they, what are we thinking? I think it's actually really simple. I think we're just trying to control ourselves and prevent pain. Just trying to control what we can. Here's what we think. Okay, here's what I think. I'm sure you're way better at this than I am. If I can see it coming, then I can prevent it from hurting me. If I can control my right here space, then I'll be ready when the curveball comes. If I can shore up my 401k, if I can say these guys are bad, these guys are good, if I can minimize my vulnerabilities and maximize my securities, then I will be okay. And if you need any more evidence that we're all this way, just look into the last three years of our collective cultural history in the wake of medical ambiguity, racial tension, political instability, economic upheaval. It's all like we're learning how to kayak in the middle of a hurricane. Like this has rocked us way more than we think. And so feeling threatened, we grab onto anything we can find for control. And here's the rub. At least here's the rub for me. Control can't calm a fearful heart. Only trust can do that. Control is a poor substitute for a relationship. Because control can't calm my fearful heart. Only trust can do that. Because control wants me to focus on me and what I can do. Whereas trust wants me to focus on God, what he has done and what he will do. And when we get spiritually nearsighted, when we lose trust, we get afraid, we get desperate for control at all costs, we need to hear exactly what Peter is telling our spiritual forebearers, that the God who brought salvation to this world is the same God who will lead you through this world. It isn't the absence of trials that saves you. It's Christ. It isn't wishful thinking that saves you. It's Christ. It isn't good behavior that saves you. It's Christ. It isn't anything you have, anything you think, or anything you do that saves you. It's Christ. And until you hope in him, all is lost. But when you do, when you hope in him, just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this is basically a declaration of dependence, saying, without this, I am nothing. (laughs) If it wasn't for shed blood and a broken body and a lamb who offered up his life, so I didn't have to, I have no hope. And we're going to close this morning by singing about that hope. And I hope this represents your heart. I'm glad you're with us on this journey this summer through 1 Peter. This is just kind of warming things up. We've got a long way to go. I'm very glad that you are here. So men, if you come as I pray, let's bow together. Lord, we want to say thank you so much for creating this world, filling it, for giving us life, for giving us purpose, for giving us meaning. And Lord, we even say thank you for the trials in this world. Help us to realize that it is a relationship with you that makes all the difference. So, Father, we celebrate that relationship in these moments. Lord, we love you. And so we just say thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.